Welcome Summit Church at all 11 of our uh, 11 now campus locations in the Triangle. I want to give a special greeting this weekend to our brothers and sisters in uh, the Wake Correctional Facility and the Women's Prison uh, here in the Triangle. I want to say a happy Memorial Day to all of you. If you got your Bibles this weekend, and I, I hope that you brought them, if you will open them to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is the fourth in our series of five minor prophets that we are looking at. Habakkuk has a very strange name, one that I'm honestly not sure how to pronounce whether it's Habakkuk or Habakkuk or Habakkuk or Chewbacca or, or however you say it, I don't know. His name might sound strange, but his book is going to consider a number of questions that we today commonly ask, uh, such as, how am I ever going to make it through this season? You ever go through some season of your life, maybe you're in one right now where things seem to be falling apart all around you and when you look into the horizon of the future, things don't seem to, to your prospects aren't any better. That's certainly how it was for Habakkuk. He, Habakkuk lived and prophesied around, around the year 600 BC. It was a time when things were unraveling fast in the, in the southern kingdom of Israel, which was called Judah. If you know anything about Israel's history, they'd gone through a, a civil war. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom had split. Uh, the northern kingdom had a series of really, really bad and rebellious kings, and so they were carried off into exile by Assyria in 722. Um, but then after that, Judah began to enter its own series of bad political leaders and a time of spiritual decline. And so God had, had sent a drought that devastated the land to the point that their fields were producing little to no fruit. Their cattle had all either been starved to death or, or been stolen. Habakkuk will describe the situation himself in, in chapter 3, verse 17 in terms that are very dire. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, there, there, there are no fruit in the vines, the produce of the olive will fail, the fields yield no food, the flock is cut off from the fold, and there is no herd in the stalls. Basically, that reads like a Hebrew country song. My wife left me, I lost my job, my truck broke down, and my dog died. Things are as bad in Judah and in Israel as they, they, they ever have been. But the point was, um, the region of Judah was, was undergoing a starvation-level social collapse. Uh, think uh, Europe after World War II or something like that. In addition to that, the Babylonians um, presented a, a looming threat, and God had told Habakkuk and other prophets that Babylon would soon invade the southern kingdom. They would destroy it, and they would carry the rest of the survivors away captive. And so Habakkuk, understandably, looks at God and says, God, how are we going to make it? I mean, maybe you're in a situation, not the same, of course, but maybe you're, maybe you just got a really bad medical diagnosis, or maybe this is, is, is another stage of a, of a crumbling marriage. Maybe the, the, um, the judge at, at the court has, has done something else that has just destroyed your hopes for the future. Maybe you're entering a season of financial difficulty and you don't know how you're going to get out of it. Maybe a boyfriend of many years and you just broke up and, and you're like, I don't know what to do at this stage in my life. I'm not sure how to start over. The book of Habakkuk was written for you, which leads to a second question that Habakkuk asked through this book, and that is, God, where are are you? I mean, I thought you loved us. Listen to Habakkuk's opening statement. Listen, see if you, you relate to this. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? How long will I cry out to you? Violence is being done toward me and you don't save. Why do you look idly at wrong? You see that word idly? You ever feel like that in relation to God? Like God seems to just sit idly by while you suffer. And, and sometimes you even say, God, are you even there? I'm not even sure I'm praying to a God that's listening. Sometimes life feels like you're in the middle of a, a really depressing TV series. 
Uh, you ever get into one of those, um, those shows where everything's going wrong and you start to wonder how can this show possibly ever turn around and end up with some kind of happy ending? But then you think, you got faith, you're like, surely the writers, surely the writers will come up with some way to pull it back around at the end and it all makes sense. But then you wonder like, what if they don't? I, I think the show Lost permanently scarred me from confidence and good endings. I just kept thinking one day, one day they're going to pull all this together and it's all going to make sense and I'm going to be glad that I invested six years of my life into this show and I watched and I watched faithfully for more than six years and when the last episode ended, I was like, I mean, you remember this, right? I was like, what? What? They, like, I felt more lost, I feel more lost now than ever. Was that the writer's intention that I feel lost? Maybe this, the, the name lost was about me, not about the show and how I was supposed to feel after I watched it. I hate this show. Um, how can polar bears survive on a tropical island anyway? Um, I, I should have known something was off um, at that point. But sometimes you wonder, is life going to turn out like that? You know, like Shakespeare said, it's a tale told by an idiot, sound and fury signifying nothing. And you wonder, maybe there's no happy ending. Maybe there's no resolution to this. Maybe there's nothing that comes out of the pain for good. There's no redeeming purpose on all that's happened. Which leads to a third question that Habakkuk asked that we ask. God, how is this fair? Babylon, who was going to cause Israel all these problems, was a, a much more wicked and godless nation than Israel was. So Habakkuk asked, God, how is it fair that we go through this while Babylon gets off scot-free? I mean, everything they touch kind of works out for them while we get terrorized. They get blessed, it looks like, and we're the ones who are suffering. How is that fair? I thought you were a just God. Listen to what Habakkuk says there in chapter one. It's, it's bold. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil, you can't even look at wrong. So why do you look idly? Again, that word. Why do you sit around and look at traitors and remain silent while the wicked people swallow up the man who is, is more righteous than he? Do you ever feel like that? Why is it that this person seemed to get off and they didn't go through what you went through and you're the one who was trying to be faithful and you're the one who was trying to do things right, but but you seem to be the one that's experiencing all the hardship. Those are three questions that I would think that every single one of us ask. I certainly have asked those at multiple points in my life. The book of Habakkuk is unusual in that it's not a sermon written to the nation like most of the other prophets, um, minor prophets gave. Instead, this is a conversation between Habakkuk and God that Habakkuk wrote down later for us. In the book, Habakkuk is gonna present a series of complaints after he gives his complaints, he's isn't going to say, like what he says in chapter 2, I will take my stand now at my watch post and station myself on the tower, and I will look out to see what God will say to me. And I will look to see what, what he will answer me concerning my complaint. Then God's going to give him an answer, and then Habakkuk's going to argue back with God, and then God's going to answer him again and flex his cosmic muscles a little bit, and Habakkuk's going to shut up. And as he does, he's going to offer one of the greatest statements of faith ever recorded in the Bible. The shape of Habakkuk's book is supposed to, to teach us something. It's supposed to show us what the internal growth of faith in our hearts looks like. You see, several portions of your Old Testament are like this, and a lot of times people don't realize that as they read it. Um, certain books in the Old Testament, rather than just telling you what God says, what the writer does is he opens up his heart and lets you learn from his faith struggle. Several of the Psalms are like that. We've looked at them here at the Summit Church before. We, we just see the writer is just saying, here's what it's like to struggle this way. The book of Job is that way. You're just getting a recounting of his struggle. One of the other minor prophets is this way also, the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is a story about one of the prophets who is struggling to, to love like God loves. Habakkuk's book, for that reason, is at times uncomfortably candid. 
I mean, he'll say things, and honestly, you'll be like, can you say that to God? And you can learn a lesson from that just right here at the beginning. God is okay with your struggles, and he is okay with your questions. When Habakkuk questioned God, God didn't snap back with, how dare thou talkest to me that way, thou worm Habakkuk? No, no, he actually seems to welcome Habakkuk's questions. I mean, think about it. God even saw fit to to record this in the Bible. So it's preserved for future generations so that we could learn from his questions and learn to see faith developed in our hearts the way that it grew up in Habakkuk's hearts. You see, Habakkuk, I mean, doubt is one of the most common tools that God uses to drive us deeper into faith. Now, right here at the Summit Church, we often say it like this, that doubt is like a foot that is poised to take a step. The step can be forwards, the step can be backwards. Um, one thing is certain though, you will never go any direction until you pick up your foot. It is true that doubt can drive you, and this has happened with some of you, doubt can drive you backwards into despair and unbelief. But it's also true that you're never going to take a step forward until you pick that foot up. And so what God does is he sends situations into your life, situations like what Habakkuk went through, where you say, God, I don't understand this. And that is God's tool to drive you deeper into faith. Doubt happens when the superficialities of your faith meet the realities of this world. And it's not that there are questions that cannot be answered. It's that there are questions of faith that your experience simply hadn't gone deep enough with God. And God needs to rattle you to get you to go deeper with him so that you can see that he's deeper and better than the pain. He's broader and more wise than the question you're asking. And he's more joyful and more secure than anything you're hoping for in life. Habakkuk's faith was fragile, as, are many of, uh, as is many of our faith. And God was trying to strengthen it. And that's what you're going to see happen in this book. I remember years ago, I read this story about a, a missionary named Alan Gardner. He was an English missionary, one of the very first. He got shipwrecked off a remote island off the coast of South America en route to be one of the first, um, uh, first people to start a new mission work on the continent of South America. Well, after his ship got shipwrecked, they, they tried to stick it out and they tried to wait for somebody to come and rescue them, but, but nobody came. And finally, they, they died of starvation before his ministry ever really began. Several months later, the, 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 the rescuers um, finally discovered where they had been shipwrecked, and they, they discovered the body of, of Gardner with his, his personal um, journal was, was tucked underneath his body. And so when they pulled it out, they noticed the last thing inscribed in it was Psalm 3410, those that seek the Lord will lack no good thing. And underneath that verse was this final phrase, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. And there was the pen just kind of lying there beside it. It was the last thing that he'd written, one of the last thoughts he had before he died. Now, most of us hear that. I read that and you think goodness of God? How would you talk about the goodness of God at a time like that? Is that what you would have been thinking about? And wouldn't you have been saying things to God like, God, I'm scared, I'm angry. God, why have you forsaken me? I was just trying to do what you wanted. You see, Alan Gardner knew the secret that Habakkuk knew. And that's what I wanna share with you. Because it's a power that will not only give you strength in these kinds of tragic moments, it's a strength that will literally infuse into your life a supernatural strength for every moment. It's what we sometimes refer to as the power of hope. And it is the most powerful, most shaping force on the planet. I think I've shared with you before, there was a legendary experiment conducted at Johns Hopkins University several years ago in which a researcher was trying to determine how long rats could swim before they drowned. And what he discovered was if you just took rats and, and threw them in the water and let them swim in a, in a bathtub, they could only make it about 10 minutes before they, they gave up strength and they just, they, they drowned. 
But he discovered that if during that 10 minutes, now get this, if during that 10 minutes, he simply picked them up and lifted them out of the water for five or six seconds and then put them back in. If he did that three times in the first 10 minutes, then the rats could swim, listen to this, for more than 60 hours. I mean, do you get that? Changing no factor except the introduction of hope gave the rats the ability to swim more than 100 times longer than they were able to without it. Well, see, my purpose is to give God's Summit Church rats hope this weekend so that you can keep swimming. For those of you who feel like God is nowhere to be found, for those of you who feel like your situation is hopeless, for those of you who are angry or maybe even worse, numb toward God, I want you to find hope. I don't want to give you a pep talk. I want you to find real hope that is expressed in times like this. So let's start with, first of all, Habakkuk's complaint there in, in chapter 1. Habakkuk's question, you realize, is really an age-old problem. The world doesn't seem to be, seem like it's being ruled by a good, all-wise, all-powerful God. Philosophers call this the problem of evil, and they trace this question all the way back to a 5th century um, BC Greek philosopher named Epicurus. And basically, Epicurus said it this way, if God really is all-powerful, he could stop all the evil. And if God is really all loving, then he would want to stop all the evil. So the fact that pain and suffering and injustice and evil run rampant on the earth means that God is either not all powerful or not good. My shortened version of that that I always say is, if he's good, he would. If he could, he should. Since he doesn't, that means he isn't. It's an age-old problem, but here we see that Habakkuk framed it long before Epicurus did, which, by the way, to me is a comfort. Because we're not asking new questions. We haven't philosophically stumbled on something that is a blind spot in the Bible. The earliest Bible writers are asking that question. I don't see how a good and wise and powerful loving God is actually ruling the world. That's Habakkuk's complaint. Here is God's answer. It's going to be a little bit in chapter 1, then later in chapter 2. It's basically got four components. I'll show you. The first component, God says, chapter 1, verse 5, he says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astonished. I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if you were told. In other words, I'm doing something absolutely amazing through these things. Habakkuk, I got a much bigger plan than you realize. In the invasion of the Babylonians, I'm going to set up a situation that will more clearly reveal, display the rescuing work that my son is going to, um, to, to do when he saves the earth. That is beyond anything you could understand at this moment to the point that you wouldn't even believe it if I told you. But it's going to lead to my glory and it's going to lead to your ultimate salvation. And that's the second thing. Chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth, he says, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This bigger thing that I'm doing is I'm covering the earth with the knowledge of my glory, which may not seem to you like it's as, as, as important as having herd in your stalls and, and, your, and your, your, your crops growing, but, but that is going to be ultimately your salvation and a lot of other people's salvation. This turn of events is going to lead to a lot more people coming to know me. Third part of his answer, chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. In other words, Habakkuk, if you're going to walk with me in the world, it's going to have to be by faith, which means that you're going to acknowledge that there are a number of things that you're probably not going to be able to see yet. That's what it means to walk by faith. You walk by faith, not by sight. When you're walking by sight, it means you don't have faith. And when you're walking by faith, it means by definition, there are certain things you can't see. Fourth component of his answer, verse 20 of chapter 2, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. 
Let all the earth keep silent before him. The last thing God does is he gives Habakkuk a vision of himself sitting high on a throne above it all. And he says, Habakkuk, if I'm still on my throne, then you can trust me with, with unanswered questions. Let's go philosophical for a minute if we, if we could. Is it possible for a good God to allow something painful when he could stop it? There's a little philosophy book I'm reading right now that presents this scenario. So imagine a commando in World War II who gets dropped behind enemy lines and he poses as a German officer so he can get into a concentration camp and plant a bomb that will destroy the gas chambers. Now imagine that as he is mingling with other German officers, he sees a soldier preparing to execute a prisoner. Now that is an evil he could stop by simply shooting the soldier, right? But at what cost would it come? He might save one soldier, might save one person, but his mission is to save many, many more lives would be lost in the long run if he prevented the individual death, but didn't stop the gas chambers from destroying thousands. So is it possible for a good person to allow something evil even though he or she could stop it? Yes, of course it is. He might allow a lesser evil in order to prevent an even greater one. Or, or how about this one? When my third daughter, Raya, turned one, we took her in for her, her round of shots that you get you know, when you um, hit your first birthday. Uh, you know, they really ought to require some kind of parental training uh, before one experiences that. Because as hard as it was for my one-year-old, I was totally unprepared for that. I think Veronica had gone with the other two kids and, and was just, this was my turn, <laughs> payback. Um, the doctor, I remember the doctor asked me to hold my little girl on my lap as he was going to give her four shots in her arm. Every time that doctor put that needle in her arm, she let out a scream that would have woken the dead. What was probably worse, though, was how frantically, as this needle went into her arm, her eyes darted around the room looking for some kind of help. And when her eyes found mine, it was like it was clear that she expected me to do something. I'm her dad. Stop this cruel doctor who's hurting me. But then here I sat, not only not stopping the doctor, but actually holding her and, 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 and enabling the doctor to do this thing. I know she couldn't understand why the one that she thought loved her was not helping her, but she couldn't perceive that I, what I was doing, I was doing not in spite of the fact that I loved her, I was doing it because I loved her. She only felt abandoned and betrayed. I knew that this was necessary in order for her to have the healthy life that, that I wanted her to have in the future. So my point is simply this, is it possible for a good person to allow something painful to happen if they know something better will come out of it? And the answer, of course, we all say is yes. Well, then is it not possible that a lot of the pain that God allows us to go through on earth might also be like that? Just as those painful shots produced a healthier life for my daughter, might it be that our pain in our lives will yield a, a greater and happier eternity? That's what God says there in chapter two, my, my, my glory, my knowledge of my glory is covering the world. And there's going to be something better that comes out of this, but you probably wouldn't be able to understand it if I explained it to you because it's just beyond the perspective of what you can see, which is also a question people ask. They say, well, but I can't see any good coming out of this. Maybe if I saw the silver lining or I saw the rhyme or reason, I'd be able to, to endure it better. Well, just because you can't see it doesn't mean it isn't happening. The way I'd illustrate it is this. If I asked you right now at your campus, is there an elephant in the auditorium, a full-grown elephant? You could pretty quickly look around and with a reasonable amount of certainty say, yep, or nope, there is no elephant. If you can't see one, it's reasonable con to conclude that the elephant is not there in the auditorium that you're sitting in. 
But if I said to you, are there any lice in the building that you were sitting in? Well, you could take a quick look around and say no. But if you say no just because you can't see one, then that confidence might be unwarranted. The person right in front of you, right, just you know, a foot and a half in front of you could have a head full of them. By the way, the next person that reaches up and scratches their head is going to be really, really suspicious, so suspend that for just a minute, right? Just because you can't see it, when it's something like that, your eyesight is just not good enough to be able to perceive things that might be there in the hundreds. The point is, understanding all of the purposes of an all-wise God might be more like locating fleas than spotting elephants, it's like John Piper, a um, pastor who's preached here before, says, said, at any given point, God is doing about 10,000 different things in your life, and you are aware of about three of them. The vast majority of them, you're just not quite aware of. And faith, the kind of faith he's talking about in Hebrews 2, it, it trusts God with that. Is God on his throne? That's the fundamental question we got to answer, which then leads into Habakkuk's great statement of faith, which is, like I said, one of the greatest ever recorded in the Bible. There's life-giving hope. He starts in, in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, Lord, I've heard the report about you and your work, oh, Lord. Do I fear your work? I'm thinking about you, who you are, and I'm also thinking about the things that you have done. See, in the next 15 verses, he's going to recount the Exodus. And it's, it's poetic language, but if you look at the imagery, the metaphors, it's very clear what he's talking about. The Exodus was the Old Testament's ultimate picture of salvation. They hadn't experienced the cross yet, so they, when they thought about salvation, they thought about the Exodus. Look at the different phrases that it, it uses. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand, which is a, a clear reference to what God, how God revealed himself at Mount Sinai when he descended there and he, he met with Israel. Before him went pestilence and plagues followed at his heel, a reference to the, the 10 plagues that he used to, to shake Egypt so that he would liberate Israel. The mountains saw you and they writhed, the raging water swept on, the deep gave forth its voice and lifted its hands on high. That's a, a reference to the splitting of the Red Sea that, that brought them through. And then again, when he split the Jordan River to take him into the promised land. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the flash of your glittering spear. That's a, a reference to when Joshua told the, the sun to stand still so that God would enable them to fight and win the battle. Um, uh, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to, to neck. That's a reference to when God brought the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, to his knees by, by, uh, by killing his oldest son and, and, and bringing the entire uh, empire of Egypt to its knees. So he meditates for 15 verses. He meditates on the Exodus, and that meditation is going to remind him of several things. First, in reality, here, here's what he, he, he comes up with, and this is really important, even though it's kind of hard to grasp. He says, first is, we are not really innocent people who are suffering. In the, in the Exodus, God was delivering his people from slavery, and their captivity in Egypt was a picture of the self-imposed slavery of sin. You see, God didn't create us to suffer. We as a race brought that on ourselves by rejecting God, a rebellion that all of us in the human race have participated in. All of us have said, God, I'd rather rule my life the way I want to see fit than how you want to see fit. Now, let me be really, really clear here. I don't want anybody to get confused. I am not saying that particular bad things in your life are happening directly because you sinned at some point, as if God is saying, hey, you did this when you were in high school, and I'm going to pay you back for that um, uh, directly because of, of what you've done. I, I'm not saying that. And Scripture never tells you to think that, that way. What I'm saying is that suffering in general exists in the world because the human race sinned, a rebellion in which we all participated in. 
which means that none of us can ever really point our finger at God and say, I don't deserve any of this. Our sin warranted eternal death. So the fact that you woke up this morning and experienced sunshine on your face and breath in your lungs is a bestowal of mercy. In Luke chapter 13, there's a, one of Jesus' most politically incorrect stories. Um, there was evidently in Israel at the time, there'd been a, a tragedy where this tower had fallen over and it killed 18 Israelites. And so um, the disciples, when they get Jesus alone, they're like, hey, Jesus, was this like God paying? Were these more wicked than other people in Israel? Like there were 18 especially bad people and God happened to see them all at the same place at the same time and thought now's my chance and pushed the tower over on him. Is that what was going on there? Now, Jesus' response, again, it's jarring, is Jesus said, no, no, that's not what was happening. But I tell you the truth, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, the question is not why did the tower fall on those 18? The question is why didn't the tower fall on you? That's the question. You see, we come to God with this question of like, why are bad things happening to good people? And God says, well, actually, the whole world is under the condemnation of death because of their sin. So the question is not why do bad things happen to good people? It's why are good things still happening to bad people? You need to reverse that question. R.C. Sproul, the theologian, was one time asked, why do bad things happen to good people? He said, well, when I, when I meet a good people, I'll let you know. And so what Habakkuk does is he just reflects on the fact that, yeah, this world is in the condition it's in, and we experience a lot of the suffering because the human race is sin, and it's the natural result of our sin. Second thing Habakkuk's meditation on the Exodus does for him is it reminds him that God is not short on power. I mean, God manipulated the most powerful nations in the world at will. He controlled the sun and the moon, and the, he split the oceans. He's not limited by anything. Thirdly, God's not given up on us. He's like, God delivered the people for a purpose. He delivered his nation for a purpose, and it wasn't to bring us out into the wilderness and die, and he's not ever going to let the purpose that he has for us go. And so I can still be confident that the God who delivered us is the God who's working in us today. So after meditating on those things, Habakkuk says, verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. What he means is I'm still in fear. I'm still in fear about what's about to come. I mean, my circumstances haven't changed. I dread the coming invasion of Babylon. My body trembles. The word there in Hebrew is my bowels. It means that my stomach is upset. I, I can't even, I can't, I, I'm not healthy. My lips quiver. That means he's, he weeps. Rottenness enters my bones. I, I feel like um, misery and, and depression have just consumed me. I dread the coming trouble, the invasion, the deprivation, the death. Maybe for you it's the coming sickness or the, the chapter you know that this is going to be when you go through. Maybe it's growing older or some of the things that come with growing older. Maybe it's the dissolving family or the financial hardship. He says, none of that's changed. My feelings haven't changed yet. Here's his resolve. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Quietly wait. That means, um, in Hebrew, it means uh, I'm going to adopt a posture of quiet repose. Even though my heart feels this way, even though my, my emotions are this way, I choose to adopt a posture of quiet repose. And then he says, verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, he is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Amen, the end of the book of Habakkuk. This is the faith that God had called for in chapter two when he said, the righteous one will live by faith. 
And what characterizes that faith is the word hope. Here's what we learn about life giving hope from his statement. And this is what characterizes somebody who lives righteously and walks with God. Number one, here's what we learn. Hope can exist alongside grief. Hope can exist alongside grief. You see all the emotions that he has there. And then you see in the midst of that, he's saying, I will rejoice. It's like I showed you his feelings hadn't changed. He's still eating up with it. The reason I point this out is that there's a real danger when Christians talk about these things of implying, listen, that faith is some kind of stiff upper lip stoicism. Or that when you're filled with grief and sorrow, that's a sign of a lack of faith. You need to put your happy face on and tell your friends, bless God, I'm just happy to be here. And, you know, and, but that's just not what you see in the Bible. In Job chapter 1, when Job learned of the things that were happening to him, it says he ripped his clothing and he wept in sackcloth and ashes, fell on the ground. And then it says at the end, in all these things he sinned not. I mean, he grieved big time. He wailed with grief. And God at the end says he didn't sin in any of that. Jesus, we know that he was perfect, yet it often says that Jesus was filled with sorrow and we know that he wept. Paul commands that believers, he says, grieve, but just don't do it like those with no hope. It is possible to have great hope even in the midst of great sorrow and great weeping. Number two, we see there that hope is a choice. We see that hope is a choice. I will rejoice in the Lord. Verse 16, I will wait patiently. That's the language of choice, which is why in the book of Philippians, Paul is going to make it a command, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, in case you didn't hear me the first time, rejoice. You don't have to command people to do something they're already doing, which means I'm looking at somebody who's not rejoicing and saying, God tells you to rejoice. Rejoicing is not a description of the feeling that you possess. Rejoicing is a choice to posture your heart to what you know to be true, even when you don't feel it. It's like I told you a few weeks ago, your feelings do not have brains. So your feelings are not thinking for themselves. You have to tell your feelings how to feel. You can't command yourself to be happy, but what you can do is explain to yourself why you should be happy and why your emotions are telling you lies. Faith realizes that it possesses something in God that is deeper and better than anything else that life can give and something more secure than anything death can take away. And Jesus, um, in Luke chapter 10, the disciples had just returned from a, a day of ministry he'd sent them out on. And evidently it was a good day because they came back just riding high and they were like, Jesus, you wouldn't believe this. The demons are subject to us. Now, see, for us preachers, that's a big day. For you stockbrokers, a big day is when you sell a stock for like five times the, the, the ROI. Or real estate agents, when you close on five properties in a week. For us preachers, when we cast out a demon, that's our big day. And Jesus said, yeah, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you because see, there might be days you don't feel that way. And there might be days you wonder why didn't the demon respond the way that he was supposed to. Or there might be days that you don't close on five properties or days that the kids aren't behaving like you think they're supposed to behave or days that the marriage is not working out or days that the finances aren't rolling in or the church isn't growing. And when that happens, you need to rejoice in who you are in me and what you possess in me because that never changes. Number three, we see from, from, from his statement here that hope comes from remembering and repeating. It comes from remembering and repeating. We got to learn a lesson from what Habakkuk did here when he rehearsed the Exodus. Did you know the Bible never tells you anything once? It just repeats it over and over and over again to the point Psalm 103. We, we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then he reviews the benefits of his salvation, just like Habakkuk did, and doesn't introduce anything new. 
your spiritual health, listen to this, your spiritual health will be directly determined by how often you review the benefits of your salvation and the glory of the God behind it all. Listen, I do not flatter myself that any one sermon of mine will sustain you for the rest of your life. Honestly, I used to think that. I used to think once I preached on the subject, it was like, boom, mic drop, just go back to that. And I preached it one time and that would change you forever. I don't think like that anymore. This sermon right now, this one might get you through this week. And then you're going to have to come back and review, not this sermon, but you're going to review the, 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 the ways of God and the glory of God that we've seen in Scripture. You're going to have to repeat and review the gospel often. When life saps your strength, you've got to force yourself to remember and repeat and wrestle with God until he reveals himself and his glory to you like he did with Habakkuk. You need to stand there. Chapter 2, verse 1, you need to get up there with Habakkuk on the watchtower And you need to say with him, I'm not coming down from this watchtower until who you are and what you've done becomes real to me again. I I know it with my mind, but my heart needs to feel it and embrace it. The reason that some of you, the reason that some of you struggle so much or your faith sags so much is that you just haven't met with God in years. It's not, it's not information. It's not like I'm going to say something. You're like, oh, that's it. That's the missing piece and write it down. It's that you haven't stood on the watchtower and met with God. And because of that, when you walk through these things, your faith sags and your joy is absent and your hope is not there. Which brings me to number four, the heights of hope only come from the depths of faith. The heights of hope only come from the depths of faith. You can see that there in verse 19. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. It makes me tread on, on high places. In ancient times, the, the summit was the safest place to be because you couldn't be attacked and you could see for miles there in all directions. Feet like the deer's means you're sure-footed. You ever seen one of these mountain deer or, or some kind of animal like that? They're nimble and they could just move across a, a mountain face. When I try to walk across the same mountain face, I'm staggering and my, my ankles are going and I'm wanting to walk sideways and they just are skipping and bouncing and moving over there. He says, when God becomes your strength, when God becomes your joy, this is what you're going to be like because you're going to have a joy that is safely above what pain or disease or death or disappointment could destroy and you're not going to stumble even during the toughest seasons of life. Notice specifically that he says the new heights of faith come from having God himself as your joy, from having God as your strength. Verse 18, I will rejoice, look at this, in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. It's not that God is going to give me joy in something, not joy from God, it's joy in God. Not he gives me strength, do you see that? It's not he gives me strength, but he is my strength. There's a big difference in joy from God, new marriage, new raise at your work, whatever, and and joy in God. And there's a big difference in the Lord giving me strength and himself being my strength. It is when that is true that you have faith that dwells on the mountaintops and feet like a deer's. And and here's the thing. That is where God wants to take all of you. That's what what he's always wanted. He's wanted people who rejoice in and, and find their strength in him. But the only way that can happen is through trial. There are aspects of God's character that you can only know when your fields are empty and there's no cattle in your stall, or when your marriage is broken, or when you feel alone, or as you're getting older and you start thinking, this is no longer in front of me, but I will rejoice in God, and I can rejoice in in, in what he has and the things that never change. Aspects of Jesus you can only find in the depths of faith. I, I, I thought this week of John chapter 11 where Lazarus, which is a friend of Jesus's, dies. 
He's friends with the whole family. And it says that he intentionally waited when he heard Lazarus was saved. The miracle worker, the healer, intentionally waits. He shows up and Lazarus is dead. And Mary was Lazarus' sister and good friend of Jesus. walks up and says, Jesus, why didn't you come? If you'd just come, then I know that he would have died. And it says that, that Jesus wept. I've always thought that was the, the oddest thing in the story because Jesus knew that in about 10 minutes, he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why would you weep if you know you're about to fix it? Because if I know that somebody's crying and I, I know that, you know, I'm some, whatever they're crying about is about to change, I'm like, no, 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 don't cry. Watch, watch this. It's going to be awesome. You don't need to cry. Why would Jesus weep with her knowing that 10 minutes later he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead? Here's the answer. He was weeping with her because that's really what you do when you love somebody. You just, you mirror their emotions. When my daughter weeps because of the shots that she's getting, I know that it's going to be okay in just a minute, but it breaks my heart and it rips it out. And I want to weep with her because when someone you love hurts, then you hurt along with them. Mary got to see something about Jesus. She got to see a dimension, an aspect of his tenderness and his love, that he is a God who not only raises the dead and fixes the problem, he's also the God who weeps when we weep. And she would never have gotten that glimpse had Lazarus not gotten sick and Jesus not delayed in healing him. And all of a sudden, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, she, it, was filled, it filled her heart. And that could only come from the depths of faith. The greatest thing that God can give you is the knowledge of who he is, to see the value of his presence in your life, for you to feel the constant warmth of his compassion towards you, and that will only come through trial. And that knowledge, Peter says, is more valuable than gold. It's better than any earthly answer to prayer. So rejoice, Peter says, rejoice when you go through trials, because those trials will produce the greatest thing in the world, and that is the knowledge of God. George Mueller was a 19th century pastor who ran an orphanage. And he was famous for receiving stunning answers to prayer, wrote several books on prayer. I've been very influential in my life. More than once, he sat the kids down in his orphanage, a couple hundred kids with literally nothing to eat. He sat down at the dinner table and he would stand up and he would say, God, we're just gonna go ahead and thank you for the provision, even though it's not here. And more than one time as he was praying, there'd be a knock at the door and somebody would just show up randomly, not knowing their need. He didn't send out emails or letters and they'd just show up miraculously and say, I had all this bread left over at the bakery and I, I, for whatever reason, I thought of you guys and thought I'd bring it over or they'd show up with milk. Stunning answers to prayer. In 1890, George Mueller's wife contracted rheumatic fever. So naturally, the man of great prayer prayed earnestly for her healing, but she died. She was only 57, by the way. The last verse that George Mueller read to her was Psalm 84:11. There is no good thing that he will withhold from those whose walk is blameless. And then at her funeral, he preached from Psalm 119:68, "Thou art good, and thou doest good." You see, he and his wife had learned that the goodness of God in their lives was better than answers to prayer, and that his goodness went deeper than the pain of life, and it was more abiding than the pleasures of life. That's Habakkuk's faith, which leads me to one last little thing. Number five, number five, hope in the future leads to prayer in the present. Let's go all the way back to chapter, the first part of chapter three, because this is a little thing you read right over. Lord, I heard the report about you. I heard about your work. Uh, in the midst of the years, right here, right here. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Midst of the years, that means my years. It means my generation. I want to see your mercy poured out in my day. I know, God, I know, I know that in the end, you're going to turn all this to joy. 
And I know that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. I know that, but I really want to see my generation included in that joy. I want to see my kids, I want to see them experience that kind of knowledge. And so I'm crying out to you in the midst of my days, in the midst of the wrath that we're under, pour out mercy. Some at church, should we not be doing that also? When I see God's goodness expressed at the cross, not only do I have the faith to endure under trial, not, and, and that's an important part, but when I see God's goodness expressed at the cross, I yearn to see that compassion break out in our generation. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I want to see him do miracles. I want to see him do miracles like he did in the book of Acts, like he did when he walked the face of the earth. I want to see miracles in the lives of my friends. I want to see miracles in the lives of my kids. I want to see outbreaks of compassion and power in this church. I want to see it happen in our city. I want to see it happen in this generation of souls all around the world. I want to see it happen in the men. I want to see it happen with the women. I want to see it happen through our church planners. Because see, his, 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 his amazing compassion, his glory in the past is what gives me confidence in his mercy in the present. You see, we got even more reason for confidence than Habakkuk had because ultimately the Exodus was a picture, a frail picture of what Jesus was gonna do for us. Luke chapter nine records that during the transfiguration, Jesus stood on the mountaintop with Moses and Elijah and, and Jesus and they were talking, it says, about the Exodus. And God the Father said that Moses was actually just a dim shadow of Jesus. What, a Moses, what Moses accomplished only partially, Jesus would accomplish fully. You see, Moses merely risked his life to liberate Israel from bondage. Jesus gave his life to liberate us from evil and sin and death itself. Moses only slew a lamb to spread its blood over the doorpost of Israel's houses. Jesus was himself the lamb whose blood was put over our souls so that we, the death angel, would pass over us. Moses established a system where priests represented people before God. And they would wear a little ephod that had stones with the, the names of uh, the Israel, uh, Israel tribes uh, carved to those stones. Jesus is himself our high priest, standing continually in God's presence on our behalf with his names engraved literally on his hands and his heart. In the cross, I see his mercy, his heart, and that inspires me to great hope and confidence in prayer today. Great expectations for him because I see his compassion revealed in the Exodus and then more fully in the cross. So where are you? Where are you this weekend? You somebody that's in need of hope? Are you somebody that just needs to re-grasp God's goodness? Maybe you're somebody that needs to pray for an inbreaking of it in the present? Well, if so, the answer to any of those is for you to remember and repeat, remember and repeat, remember and repeat, and then endure with joy, with hope, and then pray like you believe that God is the God who is the compassion of the cross and has the power of the resurrection. Some of church, all of our campuses, why don't, we, why don't we bow our heads and let's pray together. And I want to pray over us and then in just a minute, our worship teams and our campus teams will come and they'll lead you to respond directly. Father, I pray, I pray right now. I pray for people that are hearing this at our 11 campuses. God, you know the situation they're in. Yeah, you know where their hearts are broken. I pray that they would sense right now the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I pray that they would sense the, the treasure that they have in you, the hope they have in you. God, I pray that you would show them where you want to in the midst of a world underneath your wrath that you want to show mercy to, to them and their families and their friends in our generation. God, give us great faith that has joy in the midst of trial and power in the midst of, of prayer. We ask that, God, and believe it. You want to give it to us in Jesus' name. 
in Jesus' name. You keep your heads bowed and our, our worship teams and our campus pastors, they'll come and they'll, they'll lead us.